Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. As we confess our need for God, I think most of us would perhaps go a step further and say what I would really like is to see God. If I could just see God, then all of my doubts would disappear. If I could just see God, then the discouragements I have could be set aside. No more doubts, no more discouragements, no more worry, no more anxiety. If we could just know for certain that all that we believe is true because we've seen God, then all of those things would fade away. It's what Moses wanted, right? Moses said, Lord, I want to see you. He wasn't allowed that, but he asked for it. It is the hope that we give people when they are by a graveside. We are reminding them that their loved one is in the presence of God, that they now see God. And we have to hang on to that hope and that promise. It's what some of the disciples asked Jesus on one occasion when they said to him, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. That's all we need. Just show us God. I suppose that's why visions and manifestations are so common. And when they do happen, at least when they are claimed to have happened, they get very popular and widespread, gaining much attention. It's why books and movies about someone who purports to have gone to heaven and been in the presence of God and yet come back are bestsellers. And Christians of all varieties flock to these kinds of things because there is that innate desire in us that we want to see God. You may remember, this is sort of the opposite, but you may remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was the poor man, not the friend of Jesus who he raised from the dead. This is a a different story. And Lazarus goes to be with the father, but the rich man goes to torment. And he can see all of this going on, and he he pleads with God to, to end his torment. But God says, no, you had your good things during your earthly life and now you're in torment. And then he says, well, if you will then just send someone from here to tell my brothers that this is real. If someone were to come back from the dead, my brothers would repent and believe. Jesus' answer to that man was, no, they have Moses and the prophets And if they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, they're also not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead. And of course, that was proven true by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and yet most of them still did not believe. Our beatitude this morning is the beatitude that tells us that we will see God. And again, that is what most of us want. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. We're going to read all of the eight verses, but we are talking today about spiritual purity because there is a condition to seeing God. Seeing God is the promise here, but there is a condition that must be met before that. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And last week we looked at blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then today's beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to start this morning by exposing your dirty secret or dark secret. Now, don't, don't get nervous. I don't know something about your past that I'm about to share with everybody. I'm not talking about some hidden sin that you thought was hidden, but somehow I have discovered it. That's not what I'm talking about at all. In fact, it goes much deeper than that. The dark secret within all of us is that we do not have a pure heart. By nature, that is not who we are. The Bible testifies to that on multiple occasions, and this phenomenon is not new. In fact, way back in Genesis chapter 6, we hear God saying that he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it goes all the way back to Genesis that man has a dark secret and that dark secret is an impure, and that's an understatement, an impure heart. Now, we tend to focus on the external actions only. And based on that criteria, most of us think we're doing quite well. I mean, we haven't committed any of the big sins, and we, we are nice, normal citizens, and we've gathered for church on a bleak and dreary, uh, bleak, let's just leave it at that since I don't know what the next word was going to be, but a bleak Sunday morning. And so we've made the effort to get ourselves ready and come here, and by external standards, we seem to be doing just fine. But I like the way one author said it. You won't like it, perhaps, but he said, if I could flash on this screen this morning every thought that you had this past week only, you'd have to leave town, right? I mean, it would be so embarrassing if we saw every thought, every motive, everything that flashed into your mind just this past week, we might even say just yesterday, you'd have to leave town. And I would too, because that's the nature of our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Man is not getting better and better, as the society would want us to believe, Man has always had this dark and dirty problem, and that is an impure heart. Because Adam sinned, all of us were born into sin and were born into this condition. Jesus said it on a number of occasions. Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, deceit. These are what defile a man. What defiles us is not our external actions because those are merely evidences of our real problem and that is our heart. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And I could give you other examples. Those are just a couple. Therefore, the problem went to the very heart of mankind. And it follows naturally then that the solution must deal with the heart. In other words, it is not sufficient to clean up our outward acts. It is not enough to get more moral, to do more kind deeds and avoid more sin. Those things are good, but that does not get to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is the heart, and the heart needs to be transformed. I mean, this distinction between the internal and the external is what plagued the Pharisees. They saw the Jews, and certainly themselves, as good people who simply needed more moral and ethical guidance. And that is why they majored on the external compliance to a set of laws. They reasoned that if they could keep these laws on the outside enough, that they would be right with God. And this kind of theology is still prevalent today. It's what is most religions are based on. That if you do the right things, then you will be right with God. But what we're seeing here is that the heart must be pure. And the first thing we're talking about is the fact that this is not our natural condition. We do not come with a pure heart. And therefore, we all have this in common. There is a problem. We are not basically good. We are not trending in the right direction. We are evil to the core, and that doesn't mean we're as sinful as we can possibly be, but it does mean that we have a heart problem, and all of us come wired this way. So you can start doing some things. You can start coming to church or be more faithful in church, or you can feed the homeless and do these other good deeds, but the problem is still the heart. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems to me that recently there are more what the media seems to be calling cardiac events where people are having major heart issues with no, no warning signs. Certainly we saw it with DeMar Hamlin, the safety for the Buffalo Bills. Of course, that involved a hit during a game that somehow affected his heart and he had to get CPR right there on national television. It happened uh, last week as well in a prominent way at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am where one of the caddies for one of the amateurs passed out on the 11th hole and had to have CPR during the event. It happened in Gatlinburg in a high school girls basketball game between Gatlinburg, Pickman, and Union County where a high school girl, so she's only 16 to 18 years old, passes out from a cardiac event during a game and has to be airlifted to Children's Hospital. All of these things were recent, and fortunately, all three of those individuals lived. But my point is simply that we can look good on the outside and yet have a serious problem with the heart. Physically, that can be the case. But what we're talking about, of course, is that it can be the case spiritually. And so what do we do? We need to change, right? Well, again, Jeremiah says, can the, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? In other words, we are not capable of changing our heart. We are not capable of some sort of mid-course correction that will take care of this dark secret. Because when it comes to this issue, we, we do not need a shunt that's going to divert the blood flow to somewhere else 
We do not need bypass surgery. The only thing that will change us is a transplant. Every one of us needs a heart transplant, a new heart that then becomes pure. Well, that's exactly what's offered in the gospel, right? The gospel exposes our dark secret, and that dark secret is our heart. But secondly, the gospel offers you a clean slate. That is, Jesus offers to give you the pure heart that you and I so desperately need. So having realized that secret, you can be the recipient of a heart transplant. Now, that doesn't mean that once we're saved, we will never sin again. You are all aware of that, painfully so. We all continue to struggle with sin. And as long as we live, that is going to be the case. So how then is it possible for us to say that we have a pure heart and therefore we can see God? Well, let's talk for a moment about what it means to be pure. What does purity mean? It has the idea of to make something clean from dirt, filth, or contamination. You probably know it was used in, in Jesus' day to talk about the, the purification of metals, They used fire to purify the metals to get all the impurities out. So purity means uncontaminated, unmixed, or undivided. When Jesus says that we must have a pure heart, he means that we must have an undivided heart. That is not a heart that is wishy-washy or a heart that is here one day and not the next. It is a heart that is totally committed to him that he is our top priority, that our loyalty is not divided. And that is, in essence, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Again, I realize that we don't totally do that all the time, but that is to be our desire. James, writing in the New Testament, said, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is, you can't have both things. You cannot have the friendship with the world while at the same time thinking you're a friend of God because the two simply do not mix. And he goes on to say, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So divided loyalty will never lead to purity of heart. Purity of heart means that we are totally committed, we are undivided. But it also is not just emotions, and that is what we tend to think sometimes. We tend to think that we're talking about an emotion here, and it includes that. But when the Bible uses the term heart, it's clearly doing it metaphorically here. He's not talking about the physical organ, but he's talking about the inner person, which does include emotions, but it also includes attitudes, personalities, intellect, and the will. It's our whole being. And that's why I said at the very outset that if we had to put our thoughts up on the screen this morning, it would shame us all because that's part of what it means when he says heart. So when Jesus is calling for a pure heart, he's calling for total allegiance in all of these areas. That's why later on in this Sermon on the Mount, he's going to tell us that murder is not just a problem if you physically commit murder. Murder comes from the heart. And so if there's hatred in the heart, you got a problem. That's why he's going to say later on in this sermon that that adultery is not just committing a sexual act with someone who's not your your, uh, partner. He's going to say, no, that's a lust. It comes from the mind. 
And that's what he means by purity of heart. No deception, no divided loyalty, just total commitment to him. Now, how in the world can we have this? Well, I'm going to say a couple of things that are very similar to what we talked about when we talked about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And that is, there is such a thing as positional purity, just like there was positional righteousness. And what I mean by that is we are declared holy when we are converted. Just like we are declared righteous, we are declared holy and pure. The word saint, and you see that in the word of God, the word saint simply means holy ones. I mean, even in the book of Corinth, where, where Paul is writing to clear up multiple messes, he begins that book by calling them saints. They weren't acting like saints. They were having all kinds of issues, but he calls them saints because that's who they are in Christ. And we see the unity of these beatitudes. I've tried to, to bring this up time and time again as we've studied these beatitudes. You see the, the building one upon another so that once we, we come to faith in Christ, we are pursuing righteousness and we are given purity and then we're going to see in just a moment that we are still to pursue that purity as well. So the Bible is clear that we are given not only righteousness by Christ, but we are in essence declared to be holy and pure as well. However, just like any other doctrine, we must be careful that we strike the right balance. So just because we have a positional purity does not mean that we can live any way we please. That would be a great misinterpretation of God's word. So along with positional purity, there is then the pursuit, the desire, the determination for practical purity as well. And what I mean by that is we don't just sit back and passively expect God to do everything. No, God has given us a part to play in this as well. So that with that new heart comes a desire to grow in purity and in holiness. And if that is not there, then we really ought to question whether we have a new heart or not. Because the new heart is going to bring about some changes. Such that growing in our relationship with Christ should be our greatest desire. We've said throughout the Beatitudes that word blessed, and I'll recap just briefly here, that it is not just happiness. Some of your translations may use the word happy, but it's not just pure happiness as we tend to use the word. Rather, it is a deep and abiding satisfaction in our relationship with Christ. It doesn't just depend on circumstances, though we acknowledge that's going to help. No, it depends on a, a desire to be totally committed to Christ. That's the kind of blessing that he is talking about here. And we've said that happiness is not God's aim for us. Now, it's a byproduct, but it is not God's ultimate aim. So that when we say things like, but doesn't God want me to be happy that's not his primary goal for you, no. His primary goal for you is holiness and purity and being made like him. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's his goal. Now, blessings are going to come as a result of that, but that's his desire. Now, purity, is, again, is not just avoiding certain sins. In fact, we tend, to, we tend to just think purity is dealing in the sexual realm, that if we avoid any sexual sins, then we call ourselves pure. And so that word's been hijacked to just refer to that one category. But that's not what we are talking about here. We are talking about a total allegiance to Christ. The Ten Commandments 
all the other commandments in the scriptures that, that deal with our moral obligations before God. These are things that we ought to follow. These are things that we ought to want to desire to do. But again, the problem is the heart, which is why just avoiding those things is not going to get it done. Years ago, the most religious, it's probably not a good way to say that, but those who got really serious would go to monasteries. And they would go to monasteries to get away from all of the filth of the world, thinking that if they got away from all of that, that they would be pure in their relationship with God. But what did they discover even inside the monasteries? Their heart was still the problem. They still had evil thoughts. They still had impure motives. And so they came to realize that it wasn't just the external actions that needed to be avoided. It went far deeper than that. John in his gospel talks about this very thing, that he, Jesus is praying that we be sanctified or set apart, but not taken out of the world. You know, God says, I'm not taking you out of the world the moment you're saved. Rather, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to sanctify you while you are in this evil world. So how again do we do that? And Paul says we are to walk by the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So it's not just avoiding certain things, but now we're looking at the positive word and saying, no, we must walk in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who empowers us to obey the commands of God and helps us to be obedient. So the key to living a pure life, not just, not just positional purity, but practical purity, is yes, there are some things that need to be avoided. But there are also some things that need to be embraced. And the things that need to be embraced are that we walk in the Spirit of God, learning to do those things that the Spirit guides us into doing. It is much like some of you, this sort of joint venture, and I hate to call it that because we're not talking about salvation here, we're talking about sanctification. There are some things that God wants you and I to do as we pursue purity. And so some of you this summer will plant a garden. Now, there's some things that you must do for that garden to be productive. You've got to till the soil. You've got to plant the seeds. You've got to weed it. You've got to fertilize it. But even if you do all of those things, you also have to depend upon God, whether you do so consciously or not. Because you can't make the sunrise. You can't germinate a seed. You can use irrigation, but every gardener knows that rain is a lot better than irrigation. I don't know why. But it is, and you know that too. So a gardener or a farmer is in essence in a joint venture with God. That is, the farmer must do what he or she needs to do. The gardener has to do those things. You don't just sit in your house and say, well, God's going to do his part. God is going to do his part, but God expects you to do your part. And that's what we're talking about here with purity. That is, God has declared us to be pure, but now he said to us, we need to pursue purity. He's given us the responsibility to do the living, and he has empowered us to do it through his spirit, and so now we need to play our part. So we've exposed the dark secret, and that is our heart. We need a new one. And then we've seen that Jesus offers us that clean slate. He will give you a new heart, and with that new heart comes everything you need to pursue and live for him faithfully. And then thirdly then, we can experience our clear sight. That is, we get the promise of this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Now, like so many things, there is a present fulfillment and a future fulfillment. We tend to just want to talk about the future fulfillment, but I want to talk about the present fulfillment first. That is, when we apply this in a spiritual sense, we can, in a spiritual sense, see God in the present. Again, I'm not talking about physically. That has to wait to the future. But if we take this verse and apply it spiritually, I think we can say some things about our ability to see God even now. Number one, as we pursue purity, that is, as we get rid of the sin in our lives and exchange that for uh, purity and holiness and righteousness, we will have better vision in order to see God. The closer we walk with him, the more we will be able to see his hand in our lives. And again, that's what we've seen as we've walked through these Beatitudes. As we've confessed our sin, as we mourned over that sin, as that's been replaced with the righteousness of Christ, and on and on it, it builds in these Beatitudes so that now we can see God more clearly. You can't see things in muddy water, but you can see things in clear water. And the clearer our lives become as we separate ourselves from sin and faithfully pursue Christ, the the better vision we'll have in order to see God. Certainly, I'd say that we would be able to see God in creation. That is, as we pursue Christ, we begin to marvel at the things that are around us. That's not to say that others cannot. I realize that anybody can walk the beach or enjoy a sunrise or a sunset, But at the same time, that does not necessarily mean that they are praising God or seeing God in that. They may say, this is beautiful, but you and I, as we have eyes to see God, not only say this is beautiful, but we marvel at the creation and the creator who created it. And we see that repeatedly in the Psalms, where they're praising God for his creation, and it is only those of us who can see God in creation that can do that. So I think we can see God as sin is taken away and blocks our view no longer, or at least not as much. We can see God in creation. I certainly think we can see God in redemption. We talked a little bit about this, this, we talked a little bit this past Wednesday night about angels. Angels cannot praise God for redemption because they've not been redeemed. They don't know what it is to understand their sin and to confess that sin and to be forgiven of that sin, but you and I do. And so you and I can see God in redemption and praise him accordingly. And all of this leads to say that we can see God in our circumstances. That is, the more we are pursuing purity, the more, whether our circumstances are good or bad, positive or negative, we can see God's hand in our lives. We talk about that sometimes. Scott prayed about it earlier, saying something about the sovereignty of God even over earthquakes. And while that might be difficult to conceive, that is a way of seeing God. That is, we see God in his sovereignty as in control of all things. But again, I know that when we read this beatitude, what we're really thinking about is probably not any of that. It is instead a a physical sight. We want to see God physically. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And while we see God now through spiritual eyes, our great desire is to see God personally and visibly. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Longing for that day when our eyesight is no longer dim, when we cannot see God completely, when we may see him through all of these other things, but, but not with physical eyes. And that's the promise for the believer, that one day our vision will become clear. And when that day comes, it will pale in comparison to everything else. That is, everything else will pale in comparison to that. I said it backwards. When we see him face to face, our our limited vocabulary will not be adequate to praise him. All of the praises we've offered here won't do it justice. When we see him face to face, the things we've thought about, the, the ideas we've had in our mind, the pictures that we've painted for ourselves of who God is and his glory won't do any justice to it at all. It'll be far beyond anything we can think of. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Whether that is at our death or the second coming of Christ, we will be ushered into his presence and no sermon, including this one for sure, that no sermon you've ever heard will ever do justice to what you will see on that day. That is if you have a pure heart. This is not an unconditional promise. This promise is not given to everybody. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John writes, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and yet it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So that's the promise. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. But notice how he ends this. And every man that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. That's the two parts I talked about. Every man that has this hope purifies himself, that's practical purity, the pursuit of it, even as he is pure. That is the positional purity. My first church was a little church in upstate South Carolina. It was a small church out in the country. It wasn't even in the small town that was nearby. It was five miles outside of that small town, just in a little unincorporated area that was full of peach trees everywhere. We had a cemetery at that church, both across the road and right beside the church. The cemetery was quite old, but we kept it up long before I got there, and I'm presuming they still do. They kept it up very nicely. In fact, every few years, they would would hire someone to clean all of the headstones so that even those that had been there for over 100 years still, still looked good. In fact, at the time I was there, the cemetery fund had more money in it than the general fund of our church. That is the operational fund that we use to to do ministry on a daily basis had less money in it than the cemetery upkeep fund. It reminded me of what Jesus said. He told the Pharisees they were whitewashed tombs. That is, they looked good on the outside. Those headstones looked good, but you know what was under those headstones? It was still bones, right? They looked good on the outside, But underneath, it was still bones. And that's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. That their problem was not the exterior, their problem was the interior. That purity had to come from within before it ever came from outside. And that's not a new thing. Multiple times in the Old Testament, we hear God saying, circumcise your hearts. Not just the physical act, but circumcise your hearts. 
So let me close with Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who will stand in his holy place? That's the question. Who among us is going to be in the presence of God? Who among us one day are going to see God? That's what the psalmist is asking. And then he answers it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who will see God? Those who have a pure heart. And that can only happen through the transformation that Christ brings. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that you expose our secrets, but then you, you solve it. You not only are willing to, to tell us what the problem is, but you're willing to be the solution and clean it up. So thank you that we can turn to you having confessed and mourned our sin, and we can find forgiveness. And with that forgiveness comes a pure heart that desires then to pursue you in purity, knowing that none of us will ever be perfect in this life. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us the desire to be pure in heart, not just to do the right things externally, but to, but to be changed internally to be gradually made and continually made into your likeness. So I pray you'd give us that desire, the strength to pursue that, and the continued promise that when we do, we will see you. Not only see your hand in this life, but ultimately see you face to face and abide with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.